0: Who killed Jesus? In a sense, we all did. What happens in Christianity is the Jews get tagged for it. In Matthew 27:25, you know, where all the people say, and it does say, "Pasholos," it says all the people, um, "His blood be on us and on our children." And here you get this idea of like perpetual Jewish blood guilt. To which my response is, you know what? I wasn't there. You know, and most Jews weren't there.
1: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Holy Heretics Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Allen Taylor, and I'm excited for today's conversation for several reasons. First, because it gets right to the heart of our faith. Over the last three years, we've talked with hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals in the deconstruction community about why they left evangelicalism, maybe what path they're taking moving forward. But more importantly, what we've heard Uh, from you and from others, is one of the reasons why they couldn't walk away from Christianity completely was Jesus. And that sounds somewhat cliche, but I'll admit it's the reason why I have not been able to give up on my tradition, on my faith in Christianity. I was captivated by this man that I met late in life who— resisted Roman imperialism, who stood up against religious oppression and committed his short life to liberate the oppressed from their various forms of economic and political, social, gendered, sexual, and religious bondage. But in the process, I've often failed to remember that Jesus was born, lived, and died as a Jew— Jesus was not the first Christian, and if he came back today, he certainly wouldn't be a Christian. He would still be a Jew. Uh, There's a great quote by Mark Twain who once said, if Jesus were alive today, the one thing he certainly would not be is a Christian. And I think that is true on a thousand different reasons, but... One of the things that I have been guilty of, and I think a lot of us have been guilty of in growing up in the Christian tradition, is we have robbed Jesus of his Jewish identity. And in some ways, that's a form of anti-Semitism, but it also kind of tacitly pits Jesus up against um, all things Jewish. He becomes an antagonist in the Gospels to the Jewish people. And when we read the Gospels this way, we not only see the Jewish movement of the first century as an enemy to Jesus, but also to God. And I think that is some of the roots of the anti-Semitic movement that we have seen embedded in historical Christianity for the last 2,000 years. The other thing that does is when we rob Jesus of his Jewish roots, we, we miss a lot of what he's saying, what he stood for, uh, what made him who he was. And so today's guest, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, is going to remind us that Jesus was smack dab in the middle of the Jewish tradition of his time, that he wasn't an aberration or an outlier. He was a good Jew doing and saying the things that Jews said and did during the first century occupation by the Romans. And understanding all of that will not only save us from some micro-anti-Semitic aggressions, but it will also, I think, make us better Christians. So let me introduce our guest today. Dr. Amy Jill Levine, or AJ, is Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace and University Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies Emerita, and Mary Jane Werthen Professor of Jewish Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt University. Her publications include The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus, Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. She has six children's books. She has written the Gospel of Luke, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, The Bible with and without Jesus, the Pharisees, and 13 edited volumes of the feminist companions to the New Testament and early Christian literature. A.J. is the first Jew to teach New Testament at Rome's pontifical Biblical Institute. She is an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and A.J. describes herself as an unorthodox member of an orthodox synagogue and a Yankee Jewish feminist who works to counter biblical interpretations that exclude and oppress. So, A.J., we are honored to have you uh, to listen to your scholarly as well as your personal perspective. So thanks for joining us today. You have an an incredible bio, um, lots of background in research, writing, um, publishing, teaching. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about your story, something that's not in your bio that you wish everyone knew about you? (laughs)
0: Um, I, I, I wish that they would perhaps not think of me as just this kind of egghead academic who writes a lot of books and gives a lot of talks, but just as a person who's very much concerned uh, that when people proclaim to be Christian or proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, that they not use that proclamation or that identity to hurt people who have other uh, ways of being in the world. Uh, Mm. Because I've seen the Bible and the Christian tradition being used so often to hurt people. Uh, And my major concern is that they stop.
2: Mm. Well, and I was going to jump into this at the very end, but let's just do it now. Um, we're seeing this happening all over again. There is a rise of Christian nationalism in the United States. There's a rise of fascism in Europe and authoritarianism in the West. And not coincidentally, there is also a, uh, a simultaneous rise in an almost a normative approach to anti-Semitism. We have Kanye West. Um, shouting out about um, anti-Semitic views. We have Kyrie Irving. We have political individuals on a certain party here in the United States. Are those two connected? And, and and what is happening in the world where, you know, we've seen this movie before. It doesn't end well for anyone, especially our Jewish friends and family. W- what is going on uh, socially, religiously, and politically that is leading us into a, a somewhat of an anti-Semitic age out in public.
0: Scapegoating has always been popular. Uh, blaming people for for one's problems rather than addressing the problems directly uh, is <laughs> makes good political rhetoric because then people have a way of focusing their anger um, or their disappointment.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: but I think underneath all of this um, is the steady drumbeat of anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, that people hear in churches on Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, or people pick up because they read the Bible um, in a um, uh, a non historically aware and non benevolent what quote unquote non Christian way of understanding the text. I mean, it's it's an old line, and it's true. Bad stuff happens because people who consider themselves good, don't do anything about it. Or they think it's not my problem directly or I'm not directly involved or, you know, what can I as one person do? Uh, And the answer is, if you don't do something, you are directly involved because there are no innocent bystanders. And there's a whole lot you can do, starting with like cleaning up one's own household, which means in a number of cases, one's own church or one's own Bible study.
2: You know, I I did um, a master's in Holocaust studies, and one of the books that – gosh, that was, you know, 30 years ago – but one of the books that still stands out to me is Daniel Goldhagen's um, Hitler's Willing Executioners. And he talks about what you just described is there were the perpetrators, there were the victims, and then this third group of bystanders that were willing participants, willing and complicit and enablers of of evil – and I think a lot of Christians don't really understand the the fact that throughout our history as as a people we have been both implicitly and overtly anti-Semitic. Can you talk about some of the ways that you see um, this anti-Semitism in the church today, in in almost kind of microaggressions?
0: Yeah. Well, the problem is people sometimes can't even hear it. Uh, In the same way that a number of people who would code as white can't see their own uh, anti-black racism, Mm. or people who would code as straight can't see their own uh, homophobic comments coming out just in the way people express things. Um, And then what happens is when somebody who's more aware... Um, or a person who's a member of one of these groups against which the aggression is, is being um, disseminated, say something, the response is something like, oh, I didn't mean it, or it's not that much of a problem, or you're being oversensitive. And we get all this fragility coming in rather than saying, yeah, you know, you're right. I, that was probably not a good thing to say. Uh, <laughs> help me help me, if you would uh, phrase this better. So what happens in churches? Um, it is so common Uh, that um, Christians of a variety of stripes, um, and here including people who would consider themselves liberal or progressive, um, make a statement about, well, you know, the Jews of Jesus' time were something really awful. And then Jesus comes in uh, like a first century Martin Luther and says, you know, let's reform this whole thing because it's gotten really off the track and really bad. Mm. Um, Which means that Christians are figuring out how to make Jesus look good by making Judaism look bad. Um, And consequently, they wind up purveying anti-Semitic views right from the get-go. And it's both by commission, by saying something that's erroneous about first century Judaism, or by uh, leaving impressions. Oh, you know, all first century Jews were legalists, and Jesus basically says, don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Or all first century Jews were misogynists, and Jesus invents feminism in the pantsuit. Or all first century Jews are are tribal with a negative cast to that term. Uh, and uh, xenophobic and Jesus invents the United Nations. Um, And all of these really unfortunate stereotypes that, you know, sound like really good sermon comments, but they're historically inaccurate. Uh, And if you get the history wrong, you're going to get Jesus wrong, which means they're theologically inaccurate also.
2: Hmm. Can you give us some examples of that? Because I've even you know, I, I've believed that and been taught that, That, and I'll give a specific example in terms of sort of the feminism. So, I, I've read several books that portray Jesus, as you said, as this revolutionary and first century Judaism to where Judaism is portrayed as a systemic, misogynistic, and patriarchal culture and faith, if you will, religion. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and suddenly— Women are disciples, and they're moving with him, and they're they're supporting his ministry. and And this is portrayed as highly unique. But uh, I think what I'm hearing you say is th- this wasn't this wasn't unique to Jesus. It, it potentially already existed. Is that is that correct?
0: Um, I would rephrase it. Um, it- If Jesus were a feminist, if Jesus were interested in equal rights for women, then at least six of the 12 disciples would have been women. There would have been women at the transfiguration. There would have been an explicit notice of women at the Last Supper. Uh, Somebody in the running to replace Judas would have been a woman. Um, And Jesus would have said, you know what, women and men are equal. He doesn't. Um, so, you know, the other problem is that women are not so oppressed and suppressed and depressed, and then Jesus comes along and invents, you know, the egalitarian system. Um, you can do women's history from the gospels. And what do we find? Women have access to their own funds and they can spend it as they want. Nobody ever goes, oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't, uh, uh give your money to Jesus. They're money. They're patrons, in the same way that some women served as patrons of the Pharisees, or other women served as patrons of probably John the Baptist, uh, because Jesus tells us that prostitutes were following John the Baptist, Um, and I gather getting out of the business. Um, Women own their own homes, like uh, Martha, who welcomes Jesus into her home. Uh, or uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark, who owns the home where the followers of Jesus meet in the book of Acts in Jerusalem. They have freedom of travel. They appear in public and nobody ever has a, pitches a fit going, oh my God, it's a woman in public. Uh, <laughs> they show up in synagogues where they're not up in a balcony and they're not behind a screen. They show up in the Jerusalem temple a lot, including Jesus' mom or Anna from the Christmas stories. Um, when children in the temple hail Jesus, you can bet that there are, you know, moms and women caregivers in the background. Mm. Um, so what Christians wind up doing is inventing a Judaism that makes the Taliban look progressive. Um, (laughs) and, and then reading Jesus who was not particularly progressive on this model, nor does he need to be particularly, uh, and It's a specific concern that I find, weirdly, um, in churches that, for example, don't ordain women. But, you know, Jesus is still this feminist hero. Right. Um, So why not do some history? Why not see how women function in Jewish history? Um, When Jesus talks to women or heals women's bodies, why wouldn't he? Um, So why invent a negative context?
2: That's interesting.
0: Seems to me it's a sign of weak Christology. Um, If if one wants to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior, the only begotten Son of God, then he is unique by definition. Um, He he doesn't have to be socially unique in order to do what he does.
2: So I I want to piggyback on that because I feel like that there are two portraits of Jesus that are fairly dominant within Christianity, and I would love for you to maybe dispel some of those from your jewish perspective um you know growing up in in white conservative evangelicalism like i did jesus was really reduced to as you said earlier kind of a scapegoat just the the divine wrath of god his life and teachings were i mean sort of hinted at but we really worship the crucified Jesus, the one who you know got his ass kicked by God and rose from the dead, and now everybody gets to go to heaven. So, a fairly non-historical, disembodied Jesus. Then I jump into progressive Christianity, and Jesus is this social justice warrior. He's the feminist. He's the liberator. He's the one who comes in and you know is um, attacks the status quo, both the Roman imperial. Um, political party, as well as, of course, the, you know, Jewish movement and the Jewish faith. He's portrayed as this, I don't know, Latinx, you know, theologian of liberation. Are, are either one of those portraits true and or what version of Jesus do you see? Because you've not been indoctrinated in, in those kind of two binary views of him.
0: Well, I might not have been indoctrinated in them, but I grew up in a Christian context as many people in the United States have. Um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. It's not that there aren't types of Christians here also. Um, and I went to uh, you know, college and graduate school where I studied with people who were Christians who themselves mm-hmm. were products of these various views. Um, what what people do, and it's understandable, is they want to map onto Jesus stuff that's important to them. Um mm-hmm. And I don't have a problem with people portraying Jesus as um, uh, as black or as Asian um, or as some, some indigenous group. I think that's fine uh, because if they're going to think about Jesus as God, then you want God to kind of look like you and be in your own image. Uh, what concerns me is portraying Jesus only in the image of the individual who worships him uh, and not giving him his own historical space. Because if we don't take Jesus' own social location or subject position seriously he's a first-century Jew from Galilee, um, then we have no reason to take anybody else's subject position uh, seriously. Mm. And I and I want to be I want to be on on that multicultural concern because I think it's important. Um, so. If you have an image of an Old Testament God of wrath and a New Testament God of love, or an image of, as you put it, and I I don't think I've heard this before, God kicking Jesus' ass, which strikes me as theologically blasphemous, Mm. um, then better Bible knowledge uh, and better knowledge of first century Jewish thought would be helpful here, because Mm. they're not looking at God as some sort of evil, awful monster, um they're not looking at the cross as part of a satisfaction theory you know you need it to get rid of divine wrath It's a horrible view It's a horrible view um and it's not based in the scriptures of israel and it's not what even what sacrifice does if you want to look at jesus as some sort of ultimate sacrifice um if jesus is your social justice warrior you can find stuff in the jesus tradition that can prod you toward concerns like oh health care right? If Jesus is concerned about health care, then people might want to be concerned about health care. That makes sense to me. But uh, Jesus as Che Guevara? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I don't think Jesus is interested in doing away with the Roman Empire. Um, I think Jesus is interested in bringing about um, or seeing that he has a role in bringing about uh, what Christians would call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, um, or what uh, Jews might call the, the world to come or the messianic age. I think he thought that he was commissioned by God uh, to prepare his people for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Um, that's not an anti-Roman thing. That's an end of history thing, mm. or at least an end of history as we know it. Um, and the problem is that that did not come about, right? There was not a general resurrection of the dead. Which is what Paul was expecting. Uh, there was not a final judgment. There was not peace on earth. Um, we got the church. Um, now, could the church have worked toward bringing all that about? Well, in part, it did, but it also took a theological move that suggested that if you weren't a follower of Jesus, you were damned. Mm-hmm. Now, it's understandable why they did that because if you know if Jews got to buy, then why does Jesus have to die? Um, it, but they, it, many Christians took this particular view in a terrible way that suggested that if you you were not a Christian, you were either an infidel, which means you had to be converted or you were an apostate, which means you had the wrong theology. Hmm. Uh, and infidels, if they couldn't get, get them converted, they basically banished them and apostates they killed. This is not a good way of, of being in the image and likeness of God.
2: So I'm curious from your perspective, um, Personally, if you want to go there, um, the- theologically, and, and maybe even more so, scholarly, how do you approach the conversation of Jesus's divinity? Um, I, I I struggle with it. I'm I'm a you know cradle Christian, grew up in evangelicalism. Now I'm a confirmed Episcopalian, and I guess the older I get, the more I'm disinclined to jump into and believe in this virgin birth theory. Um, I believe Jesus attained some kind of divinity. I don't know how that happened. Uh, but again, that's my Christian ease speaking. How do you how do you respond to the notion of was Jesus divine?
0: Well, that's not a question an historian can answer, and I'm an historian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, in the same way, I can't, I, I can't respond to Hindu confessional concerns or Muslim confessional concerns and all that. I think theology, um, if you have a theological belief, my concern is less, um, well, is that belief true? Because I don't think historians can answer that, but what does that belief lead you to do? So I tend mm-hmm. to take the theological question and move it toward issues of ethics um, or practical theology of action. Um, I, 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 to ask questions like "Is this true?" or "You know, is Jesus divine?" It's sort of like asking, it, 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 "Is love correct?" <laughs> um, I, I don't think theology is like Sudoku, where, where if you're just really rational enough, you can get the right answer. Um, I think theology is like love, and if you love somebody, that makes perfect sense to you. Um, and as long as that love is moving you in a healthy and happy direction, you know, go for it. Um, it but I can't judge it because I don't have that same type of love. Mm. So it, it, if you believe in Jesus. Uh, as Lord or as divine or whatever, um, that's like love. Uh, that's fine. What I can do as an historian is say, you think he's interesting or you think he's important? Um, see him through my eyes to see exactly how interesting and important he is because I think he's fascinating. Mm. Um, and I think he's ethically profound. And I think he has splendid things to say, um, which you've heard, particularly in their historical context, are even more splendid than you might possibly imagine. So I'm not interested in in either affirming or destroying somebody's theology. Um, If it's a healthy theology, I'm interested in enhancing it. And if it's a theology that leads you to hate, uh, I'm interested in saying, maybe you want to have another look at Jesus.
2: (laughs) So what are some of those things that drew you to Jesus, drew you to this first century Jewish? um, Can we say prophet uh, from your perspective? Would you say prophet? What Maybe first, what is he, and what continues to draw you to study and and get to know him more?
0: Yeah, um, I, prophet's a difficult term mm. um, because it depends upon how you want to define it. I mean, do we want to take um, Martin Luther King Jr. as a prophet, for example, or Gandhi? Um, in Judaism, we have prophets, and that that genre is done. Uh, you know, is he a wise teacher? Clearly. Um, it, does he give? Uh, does he does he present his tradition in a way that makes you sit up and go, "Yeah, that's right," but I never thought about it in quite that way before. Uh, it, it, some of my Christian friends will talk about going to a revival or hearing a preacher, and the preacher talks about something that they've been ta- like the you know the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son, um, and they hear it in a way that they've not heard it before, and they go, "Wow!" You know mm-hmm. that makes you sit up and take notice. Um, I really like music. Um, and I very much like jazz. Um, And and I've listened to a lot of jazz. And there are certain jazz standards that if you play jazz, everybody knows. And then you hear this this new version of something you've heard forever. (laughs) And you go, wow, that's great. Um, So I think what we've got with Jesus is somebody who's taking his own tradition and presenting it in a way um, that's arresting and effective and sometimes amusing. And you sit up and go, yes, right, I get that. Um he's he is, as you pointed out, a Jew. Okay, so he's one of mine. So <laughs> part of part of what I'm doing here is I'm I'm doing Jewish history, which I'm interested in, uh, for both academic as well as personal reasons, because this is Jewish history that I did not learn in the synagogue. Right? Uh, the only Pharisee from whom we've got written records is Paul of Tarsus. So why wouldn't I be reading Paul's letters? Mm-hmm. Uh and I don't think Paul becomes an ex-Pharisee. He's he's a Pharisee forever. I mean, he just Um, As my friend Paula Fredrickson put it in a recent article, once he found Jesus, he's just a better Pharisee. (laughs) Uh, uh, Jesus is the first person in literature ever called rabbi. I think the parables, uh, on which I have written quite extensively, um, are really good Jewish stories. But over the centuries, they've been deformed, both by lack of knowledge of first century Judaism and by an attempt to get a theological reading out of them, uh, rather than get an ethical reading out of them.
2: Mm. So one of the things I've read from you that that kind of dovetails here, uh, you wrote, for far too long, Jesus has been a wedge that drives Christians and Jews apart. I suggest that we can also see him as a bridge between us. And you're hinting at that at some of these conversations. Can you expound a bit
0: on on what
2: you meant by that when you wrote it?
0: Yeah, Um Jesus is a first century Jew, which means he's part of Jewish history, and I think people ought to know their own history. Um, I think Jesus has some very wise things to say, which are not um, antithetical to Jewish thought, and here I would look at the parables in particular, uh, pr- pretty much all of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, even a number of his debates with fellow Jews fit within Jewish debate, because Jews have been debating Torah since Moses came down the mountain. Um, <laughs> So I think knowing about Jesus in first century Jewish history would be good for Jews. It would be good for recovering our own history. And it would also be helpful when Christians say incorrect and harmful things about Jews for the Jew to be able to say, well, actually the New Testament says, I find that really quite effective. Um, and for Christians to recognize that Jesus is not only their Lord and savior, the only begotten son of God, he's also a first century Jew
2: mm-hmm.
0: who had to make some sort of sense in his own historical context. Um, so my my concern here is not that Jews start worshiping Jesus. You know, if they do, that's fine, they're messianic Jews. Um, but they actually know the material, uh, both how it fits in history and how it has been interpreted in a hateful and anti-Semitic manner over time.
2: Hmm. Well, I would love to maybe pick your brain as it relates to your understanding of what Jesus thought and 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 believed. As a first century Jew, Um, I I think Christians have made him Christian. We've created doctrine and dogma that we kind of wrap back on him. Um, Things like, for instance, you know, some of the biggies in Christianity, like the notion of the inerrancy of Scripture. When you look at the historical figure of Jesus and what we know of him, um, what would his view of the Hebrew Scriptures have been given his his place in time and time in history.
0: Yeah, your question presupposes that we have a fixed canon. Well, oh, exactly, right,
2: exactly. Yes, and, and
0: that that's already a problem. You you mentioned earlier that you were uh, either are or were part of the Episcopal Church. Um, and the Episcopal Communion is not just looking at the Hebrew Scriptures. The Episcopal Communion is also looking at what are sometimes called the Deuterocanonical books yep. or the Old Testament Apocrypha, which means your, your Old Testament has Greek stuff in it. Um, <laughs> Hebrew Scriptures is just a Protestant term that's attempting to be a catch-all, and it really isn't. Mm. Um, so, you know, did Jesus know the books of the Maccabees or at least the stories of those Maccabean martyrs? I think so. Um, it, he would have looked at the text as something, whatever text. Or whatever stories, because again, we don't know if he's literate. Luke might have given him an upgrade mm. uh, when he reads. Well, he finds the place where something is written. It doesn't actually say he reads Isaiah, and if he does, he's not reading the version we have. Um, so he knows the stories, he knows the traditions, but he also knows that this is material that needs to be discussed uh, and needs to be debated. So the issue is not errancy or inerrancy. The the issue is how do we understand this. Mm. Um, and Jews are more than happy to debate this material. The problem is Christians are not. Why? Um, You sort of answered the question yourself when you talked about dogma and creed. Um, Jews are not just a religion. We're not just an ism. Uh, We are a people uh, with a a sense of a common ancestry from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives, uh, a a homeland, the land of Israel, and a constitution, which would be the Torah, a language which would be Hebrew um, so or a people you know like Germans <laughs> right. or Americans right um, and if you're a people, you can debate because there's no way they can take your peoplehood away from you
2: mm. right?
0: um, Christians are a, a faith community and somebody's used the term religion but it's probably not a good definition of religion. They are bound together by a confession or a particular view of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now if you're if you get into a movement by belief, um, you also get out by belief. So in the same way, right. right? Christians kind of invented this faith community thing. Uh, they also kind of invented heresy. Uh, so Christians are held together by creed and by dogma, and you don't want to have too much debate because if you get too much debate, you're out of the system, right? Um, which is how you wind up with all these different Christian churches that don't talk with each other uh, right. or sign each other to hell. Um, Jesus, as a Jew, would have debated Torah, would have debated what stories meant, would have said, give me another reading or tell this to me in another way, um, and would have felt perfectly free to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because especially growing up as an evangelical, one of the things that I look back on is... You had to believe the right things in order to be in community with with these individuals. And and many of us, especially most of our listeners who are in the deconstruction community, they've lost not only faith, but they lost community because they dared to question some of the, the fundamentalist beliefs of Christian evangelicalism. and And I think what you're saying is from your perspective, you are – This is a normative thing within Judaism that you have lively spirited debate that you can come to the text and argue with one another and point out different perspectives. And most of us were trained that that is taboo. You do not question. There's one interpretation. It's the one that the pastor or your family has given you. And it creates this um, a domination system, if you will, that you have to conform to beliefs. And once you start to believe something differently, well, you're you're dangerous. You're taboo. You're kicked out. I mean, I've I experienced this on almost a daily basis. Um, I used to be a, a radically conservative Christian and still live in Colorado Springs. And I still see many of the people I used to work with and go to church with. And they view me as a pariah on many levels because of belief. I don't believe the same things that they believe. And I, I think what I'm hearing you say is there is a dy- dynamism within Judaism that allows for dissent and debate. Is that is that kind of what you're pointing to?
0: That's part of it. Um, it. What you've described strikes me as both theologically deadening and, and frankly, quite boring. Mm-hmm. You know, if something only means one thing, why do you need a sermon, right? Just get up and, and you know, take the thing out of the file because it's going to be the same message every year um, or every week. How how dull. Mm. Um, it also seems, at least from a theological perspective, to be putting the Holy Spirit out of business because uh, <laughs> it's got nothing more to teach. Well, mm. that's deadening too. Mm. Um so, I, I find debate lively. Um, uh, study in Judaism is actually a form of worship. Uh, Orthodox synagogues are frequently uh, called the shul. Um, shul comes from the Low German shul, it means school. Uh, because the education, the learning, the study, the debate over textual meaning, the debate over practice, the finding new interpretations of very old stories, and then putting those interpretations into, into conversation with 2000 years worth of tradition, which we've held onto. Um, it's, it's intellectually fascinating and it's fun. Um, and you wind up with, with ethically profound statements, right? Um, And you also wind up with, you know, Jews disagreeing, but at the end of the day, we're all still Jews. So we may disagree, but when it's time for evening prayers, we're all in there together. (laughs) So we we can hold these tensions uh, as families might hold tensions and families might be in disagreement. Uh, But if you love each other, you can hang on to that. And -hmm. that's fine. In fact, it's healthy. So let me ask a a tense question.
2: I've been dying to get your answer on this. Why did Jesus die? And, or maybe a more direct and hopefully not obtuse question that who killed Jesus? Why did he die?
0: Yeah, those are different questions. Um, <laughs> who, killed, who killed Jesus? <laughs> Clearly, Pontius Pilate signed the death warrant. Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Right. Uh, but you can extend it a little bit more. Um, So before COVID, I was teaching regularly uh, at Riverbend Maxim Security Institute, which is a state prison here in Nashville. Uh, It is where Tennessee's death row is located. Um, And I've done work with people on death row. Mm. So, you know, who executed and and we still kill people in Tennessee. So, you know, who executed the last person? Right. In a sense, we all did. And this goes back to that innocent bystander or not innocent bystanders. You know, I could stand outside the prison um, with a candle and and sing uh, whatever songs, mostly my Christian friends who are out there might sing. Um, who's responsible? We all are. Because if we wanted to storm the prison, we could do it. And we're not gonna do that because we're scared and we don't wanna get shot. Um, and We don't wanna leave our families you know, without mommies and daddies. Um, so in a sense, we're all responsible. Um, I wrote a book that came out last year called Witness at the Cross, and I have a chapter on the bystanders. Um, but there, there are all these other people who were there. Could they have done something? Of course they could have done something. They don't. Um, and there are reasons why they don't, and I understand them. But who killed Jesus? In a sense, we all did. Um, and that, or they all did, those people who were there. And that moves to the question of also theology. So if you if you ask, why does Jesus die? Um The theological answer, depending upon the Christian that you ask is, uh, you know, to save people from their sins is an ultimate sacrifice. Okay. Um, well, if that's the case, then all people are responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, it's that old hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Um, what happens in Christianity is the Jews get tagged for it, uh, in Matthew, uh, 2527. It's uh 2725, you know, where all the people say, and it does say pasholos, it says all the people, um, his blood be on us and on our children. And you get this idea of like perpetual Jewish blood guilt, to which my response is, you know what, I wasn't there. Right. <laughs> you know, and most Jews weren't there. Most <laughs> Jews had never heard of Jesus even at the time, right? Um So that changes with with actually Vatican II in 1965, um, when the Catholic Church said, no, we can't blame all Jews at all times. You know, some of them were there, you know, like Caiaphas, was he involved probably uh, by commission or omission? He didn't do anything to stop it. Um, And then some Protestant churches said, yeah, this seems like a good idea. Let's stop dumping on all the Jews. I mean, that would be a good idea. (laughs) Um, Why does he die? Because he's a political threat. Mm -hmm. People want to make him king. He's a popular leader. Uh, And Rome, you know, Rome's venal, but they're not stupid. So Rome says, wait a minute, it's Passover time, you've got all these pilgrims coming in from all over the place, you know, the city is packed. Um, and what Pilate would do during the pilgrimage festivals, because Pilate's normally out at Caesarea on the ocean where it's cool, when it, he brings his troops into Jerusalem and they set up in a Roman fortress overlooking the temple, um, as if to say, you are know, celebrating your fe- feast of freedom, you Jews, your freedom from slavery. Ha, ha, ha. Mm. You know, we, we're Rome and we're in charge. So the place is a powder keg. And then this this uh, very popular leader and teacher comes into the city and people want to make him king. We have a sense of that already in the Gospel of John. You know, They tried to make him king. And Pilate's thinking, you know what? Here's what we're going to do with your king. Um, and crucifixion is for Roma type of advertising to say, we are the ones in charge. Mm-hmm. So here, the is on the cross is the title because it explains why somebody got executed. That's really important. Um, So he's executed under the title, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, King of the Jews. Right. So it's a political charge. Mm. And that's what Rome does with people who have pretensions of kingship. Or even if he did not, uh, people uh, who Rome thinks, well, the crowd might want to follow him. Um, And we can see this concern for popular leaders already. Uh, up in Galilee with uh, Herod Antipas executing John the Baptist. And the first century Jewish historian Jesus tells us that basically Antipas engaged in a preemptive strike. He knew that John was extremely popular and he was afraid that if John said, listen, not only uh, is Herod's marriage incorrect, but we ought to do something to dethrone him because he's an illegitimate ruler, that the Mm. people would follow him and go into revolt and consequently Herod had him beheaded. You're a popular leader. You may well get killed. Um, And we have seen this over and over and over again. Um, Just recently, uh, in Pakistan, uh, where a political figure was shot at yesterday.
2: What's your favorite, as a New Testament scholar, what's your favorite kind of canonical or non-canonical work as it relates to this figure, the historical Jesus?
0: Well, I like all four Gospels. Um, and, and the one I like the best is usually the one I happen to be teaching at the time or the one uh, <laughs> on which I'm writing an article. So I'm embedded in it, mm. uh, because whenever I do this and I've been doing this a very long time, I'm old, right? Old is great. By <laughs> way. Old is fabulous. Um, it, 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 I teach and then, and my students will come up with, with readings that I've not considered, you know, what about this? Or they'll ask mm. questions I haven't asked. Going, what a great question. Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing uh, two nights ago a talk with students at the University of Toronto, primarily from the Eastern Orthodox traditions, and they were asking questions that I had never thought about. You know, coming out of their own religious uh, identity. I was like, wow, this is great. You know, let me think about that. One. Let's go back and look at this again, or let's check the Greek. Hmm. Um, it, so it's 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 so filled these gospel texts um, with so much. the, the interest is inexhaustible. Um, and as we continue to bring new questions to the text, questions about immigration which, you know, 20 years ago, people weren't asking that much questions about gender and sexuality, uh, questions about politics, questions about family values. And um, you start seeing new things there that you hadn't thought of before, or new ways of telling the story in light of, uh, particular things that are happening in, in our own country or in our own families or in our own, uh, environments. And the, and the same thing holds for the scriptures of Israel, um, this is the benefit of narrative and it's also the benefit of law code because all law codes continually need to be updated. Mm. So when it says, you know, we have the constitution and we have the declaration of independence, which people who proclaim them have rarely read. So yeah, but we also have amendments and we also have, um, you know, the Supreme court that's deciding on new things and will sometimes backtrack and will sometimes move forward. (laughs) Right. It it needs to be debated and discussed. Um, And it should be done by people who actually read the stuff, and ideally, read it in the original, you know, as best as we can get at it. It's not like we have a copy of, like, you know, the original Matthew sitting exactly. on somebody's desk somewhere. Uh, but, but to do that historical work and say, what's going on here? Um, but then not stop with it and to say, well, here's what it might have meant in the first century. Or here's what you know, somebody in Antioch might have thought hearing the gospel of Matthew first proclaimed. Mm. Or here's what somebody thought when Jesus said something, if we could actually get back to Jesus himself. Um, but here's what I'm going to do with it. Because otherwise we're playing first century Bible land, and that's not healthy either.
2: Right. Well, I'll I'll ask one final theological question based on what you just said. Um, As much as we can kind of put Jesus back together um, without giving him the beliefs that we have today, what would Jesus have thought about what I would just describe as our modern um, understanding of hell.
0: Well, I mean, first century Jews had, had a variety of different views about what the afterlife was. Um, some people thought dead was dead. That's um, probably the Sadducees, right? Who don't believe in resurrection. As biblical scholars say, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And that's what made them Sadducee. <laughs> um sorry uh the um the the dead sea scrolls hint at both physical resurrection and kind uh you become like the stars shining in the heavens that's that you get a hint of that in Matthew with that star bethlehem which isn't a star you know that stops over somebody's house because stars don't stop over people's houses if they do the entire you know earth would be incinerated because <laughs> stars are giant balls of hydrogen gas um but that that stars are sentient beings like faithful people become stars right and that's their or um, some thought that there was, you know, a place in heaven or a place up somewhere up, um, where you went and eventually you would be reunited with your reconstituted body and then judged both body and, and spirit together. So 1st century Jews had a variety of views of this afterlife, including a variety of views of what happened to you if you were not a good person or mm. you did not do good things or you were just rotten to the core. Um, so Jesus may well have thought of a hell. Did he think of it as sort of permanent pain? I'm not sure um when he talks about the you know the unquenchable fire and the worm and all that it's like it, 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 you get burnt up you're you're done yeah it's over um, so it's not like you just burn forever as if your body's made of asbestos um uh, you start getting more developed views of heaven and hell um, as we move on from the first century uh, into the second and the third, substantially informed by what we today would call Greek mythology. Back then, they thought about it as they wouldn't have thought about it as mythology, right? This is what they thought, or at least what some thought. Um, and eventually it gets you something like um, Dante's Divine Comedy with the Inferno, with, you know, rungs of hell right. and the Purgatorio, where you worked out your sins if you were not, not you know, ir- irretrievably evil, but you had mm-hmm. some stuff to work on. Um, and then heaven. And the more the followers of Jesus talked about heaven and hell, the more the synagogue said, you know, let them worry about it. <laughs> um, the church talked about salvation and the synagogue increasingly talked about sanctification in this world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? We Jews did not have an idea of original sin. Um, there's a Psalm that talks about being born in sin. It's like a one-off um, conceived in sin. It's a one-off in the entire Hebrew scriptures. Um, where the I'm using the term Hebrew here deliberately because it's sure. not yeah. in the, the Greek material. Um, And it's part of a lament psalm. And lament psalms typically say, things are really, really bad for me. Like, how bad are they? At the time I was conceived, it was bad. Uh, (laughs) it's, It's not some sort of doctrinal thing. Uh, First-century Jews and 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 traditional Jews today will sometimes talk about how we are born with both a good inclination, uh, a yetzer hatov, uh, and an evil inclination, a yetzer hara, uh, and the good inclination encourages things like benevolence and generosity, and the evil inclination encourages things like selfishness or greed. Yeah. Um, and the way we look at Torah, the law code, is the Torah is the mechanism by which we can harness. The traits of the evil inclination and get them to work for good. Um, So selfishness is what, for example, encourages us to have a family because selfishness says, gee, uh, you know, my sexual partner is going to be my spouse and not anybody I can find. Um, and I will love my children probably more than I love other people's children. But you can you can harness that in a very very positive way. Hmm. Um, so we do not look at ourselves as beginning with a negative anthropology, you know, conceived in sin and and it, you know irretrievably bad, unregenerate. Um, and then Jesus has to come and save us from that. We begin with a kind of positive anthropology. Hmm. So whereas Christians will frequently look at the story of the Garden of Eden as like the fall which is not a term we right. find in Judaism. Um, we kind of look at it it's not as original sin but like original opportunity because when <laughs> Eve get tossed out of Eden God goes with them. You know it's not yes. like they lost the presence of God and no matter what people do and people do all sorts of horrible things, you know God's there God's hanging in with the system, which I think mm. is great. So it's not as if there's an alienation between humanity and divinity from you know the garden of Eden to Jesus God's always there and you can see that just most clearly probably in the psalms
1: hmm. which
0: suggest an intimate relationship between god and and people whether communal or individual wow
2: yeah you know i maybe i'll end with this um and it shows my bias it shows my lack of education it shows my indoctrination i, I so help me with this i grew up with the very basic view that the god of you know, quote, the Old Testament, is this wrathful, vengeful, violent, tribal deity. Suddenly, Jesus pops onto the scene and God is enfleshed as this kind and gentle and meek and suffering servant. And you have this dichotomy. And of course, as a Christian, I'm like, well, that dude seems awful. This guy seems pretty cool. But how have... Christians in particular gotten the God of the Hebrew scriptures the sacred text of your people wrong
0: oh it's also the sacred text of the church mm. um which I think that the church is sort of forgotten about um there are people today who are saying we should really be a New Testament church and the Old Testament is just propedeutic, it's just gonna you know, a background but we really right. don't need it yeah exactly. Um, yeah, so that back in back in the second century, that was associated with a fellow called Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N, looks like mm-hmm. Martian, um, uh, and and it was proclaimed a heresy. Uh, it, and as far as I know, it's still a heresy. Um, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to recognize that he comes in the middle of the story, not at the beginning. Right. And the gospels tell you that. I mean, Matthew starts off with Abraham; it doesn't start off with Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. John starts off with creation, right? And, and in the beginning. Mm. Um, so how do we get it wrong? Because we read selectively um, and we read in order to make ourselves what Christians read in order to make themselves look good by making Jews look bad. Um, there, it's it's a sign of weak Christology. Uh, mm. it, it's not a sign of trust in Jesus. Uh, because if there were, then then you could recognize that Jesus doesn't invent a new and different God. Nowhere does Jesus ever say, "You know what? That Old Testament God really crappy. Let me give you mm. a new version." Right. Um, it, you know, if he thought that was the case, he would have said so, uh, mm. and people could have recorded it because they recorded all sorts of stuff. Um, when I get that nonsense from my students, um, I'm just inclined to you know quote the text. Fine. The Lord is my shepherd, who leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. That's the Psalms, right? But you are condemned to the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's Jesus. You know who's who's the kind and benevolent one, and who's the one who's a little bit spooky. Um, you know, and and it's unhelpful in both directions. Right? You know, God right. on a bad day, have a look at the Book of Revelation. Um, it's the same God. Um, And it's a God that's abounding in mercy and extraordinarily generous and manifesting love and creating us in the divine image and and all that wonderful stuff. Um, And and if you knock that out, um, you're you're basically cutting off your theological legs and there's no reason to do that. Mm. Um, Jesus, the God to whom Jesus teaches his followers to pray, our father, that's Matthew, or just father that's Luke, um, is is the God of the Scriptures of Israel. It's the same God. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, if if you don't trust God enough and you don't trust Jesus enough, then you're going to come up with all these, these bizarre views uh, that marginalize the Scriptures of Israel, um, that don't take Jesus' own historical embeddedness seriously. So he becomes sort of like Jesus the friendly ghost who has no historical anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, It suggests that the divine promises, uh, which begin with Noah and continue, are worth nothing. Um, And it says the history of God is worth nothing. Why would Christians do that? It strikes me as counterproductive.
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, AJ, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for indulging me. Thank you for indulging some of my elementary questions. I mean, you know, I I find that... It 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 is sometimes challenging to to want to ask a question out of a, a great place and then realize like, oh, that's actually not how I should have asked that. So I, I really appreciate your kindness in, in in this. Anything that you wanted to talk about that we weren't able to get to today, or that I wasn't smart enough to ask you. <laughs>
0: um no, but but what I wish, and I'm I'm saying this is, is like a proxy mother. Because if mm. you were my kid, this is what I would say. It's awful when somebody says, let, you know, let me be your mother for a minute. I know that's <laughs> obnoxious. See, you run yourself down. Don't do that. Okay. All right. Don't, well. you know, don't say, I shouldn't have asked this or this is coming from ignorance. I'm delighted when people ask questions because people don't ask, how are you going to learn? Right.
2: Right. Right.
0: Um, or, I you know, like, I'm afraid to ask this. Right? Well, you know, but then that's not productive. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I wish people would ask more questions, and yeah. I wish people would ask the questions that they really want to know about, um, rather than just "Oh, I'm what's going to happen?" Right? Um, it, the worst thing can happen is somebody goes, "Well, that's just, that's a dumb question." Um, <laughs> now, there's a pedagogical statement, right, that they teach you when you start learning about how to teach. and Well, oh, there are no stupid questions. Well, of course, no. there are. Yeah, we've heard that. <laughs> um, but trust the person with whom you are speaking. Uh, that if, even if you happen to have asked one, which by the way, you did not, um, that, that the person on the other side can make it into a good question anyway, because, you know, the upshot is if it's a question that's meaningful to you, then it's a good question. It may be Mm. premised on a wrong idea, Mm, right? Yes. But, but if it's, if it's something you want to know about, then I think you should ask it. Mm.
2: Well, thank you, and and for as we wrap up for, for those of us who want to know one more about your work, and then two more about the Jewish Jesus, where can we go to find you um, online, and or some of maybe one of the one of one of your works that you would recommend as an entree into this conversation.
0: Well, I mean, the easiest thing to do is to look at my Amazon page, which this morning after I talk with you, I have to go update. Um, <laughs> I, I looked at it the other day uh, because somebody asked me a question. I, went, well, I don't think that's right. Um, and my bibliography, my biography is way outdated, so I got to go fix it. Um, <laughs> so you go to Amazon. You want to read par- about parables, look at short stories by Jesus. You want to know about Jesus in his Jewish context, look at the misunderstood Jew. You want to know about Pharisees, um, I co-edited with my friend Joseph Severs, who's a, a Jesuit Roman Catholic. Catholic priest in Rome, uh, a book on the Pharisees that came out this past uh, November. Um, you want to look at, you know, who are Jesus' friends? You can look at the various study guides from Abingdon, like Witness at the Cross, which gets us the women and the beloved disciple and his mother. Um, uh, you want to look at the Sermon on the Mount, there's a book on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, I'm old. I've been doing this a very, very long time. Uh, so there's, there's stuff out there for Pretty much anybody who's interested in the, the broader Jesus tradition, the general Jewish background, look at something called the Jewish Annotated New Testament, second edition, which came out in 2017, uh, which I co-edited with my friend Mark Brettler, who teaches at Duke University. Um, and that gives you notes to all of the gospel texts. And it also gives you very, very short and user-friendly back essays on things like how did Jews understand Torah and how did they practice their religion and mm. what were the holidays and what was Jewish family life like? And mm. also how Jews have looked at Jesus over time because it's not as if we haven't been paying attention. And how <laughs> Jews looked at you know, Mary over time and looked at Paul over time uh, because the Christian tradition following its, its uh, quite long and fraught separation from Judaism uh, has influenced Judaism and Jews nonetheless.
2: Mm. Wow. Well, thank you for, uh, for bringing us together. Uh, we live in a world where differences have been weaponized and the fact that we can sit here and have a conversation about a shared individual that means so much to, to both faith traditions, hopefully is a model for the way we move forward. So AJ, thanks for joining us today. It, it's truly
0: been a delight to have you. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I look forward to the next time we can do this.
1: Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to SophiaSociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.